We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, January 11th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. My name is Guy Benson, your host. Glad to have you here every single weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you can't catch us live, you can catch us on our podcast, which is free and on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, your one-stop shop for all things related to the program. Programming note on the TV side, I'll be joining Kennedy tonight. On the panel, Fox Business, 7 p.m. Eastern. See you there. Here on the radio, we are packed today. We've got the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. He's here as the president is preparing to speak in Georgia. He will be talking up this completely uncalled for and I would say unjustifiable federal power grab on so-called voting rights. Both Biden and Harris will be down in Georgia making that pitch, also talking about blowing up the filibuster in the U.S. Senate to do it. All on the notion, all rooted on the fiction that states like Georgia are undermining the right to vote. This is not true. Every part of this is untrue. But that's what they're spending their political capital on. Something that they don't have the votes for. And in almost all likelihood or certainty won't have the votes for thank goodness but we will go through and bring you the facts as it pertains to georgia and this democratic attempted power grab with the secretary of state from georgia where there's a lot of very happy people today by the way after the national championship game last night in college football Later on, Emily Campagna will be here. Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas will be here. Bill Hemmer going to check in with him for the first time this new year, our Fox News colleague. And then, because of that aforementioned football result, we had to invite Joey Jones, a hardcore Georgia Bulldogs fan. They finally did it. He will reflect on all of it on the home stretch at the very end of the show today. So we are loaded up. We are packed. Let's bring you stats as we always do. Fox News alert. On COVID, the case count on COVID all in cumulatively in the United States, 61.5 million. And that is well short, tens of millions short of the real number. The death toll, people in America who have died with or of COVID over the course of the pandemic, 837,911. The Dow is in the green today following some testimony earlier by the Fed chair. So the Dow is now up. Roughly 200 points. It's been ending the day in lost territory recently, but now on a better trajectory with 51 minutes to go, up 199 points right now. Trading at 36,268. We'll keep an eye on that. 
We open the program today with a few comments that I want to make regarding the governor of the state of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Republican is up for re-election this fall. Very important election in that state and, of course, all across the country. And we have spent, I would say, an inordinate amount of time talking about DeSantis over the last year plus. Not because I have any sort of special excitement over Ron DeSantis, although I will say he has grown on me in a lot of ways. I sometimes criticize the decisions that he makes, the way he decides to prioritize certain things. I mean, I'm not going to be in total lockstep with Ron DeSantis all the time. I do think he's done a hell of a job at governance. I really do. And I think on some of the really big stuff, keeping schools open, prioritizing seniors for vaccines, that sort of thing, he has gotten the job done extremely well, and he's done so in the face of relentless criticism, no matter what he does. Right? He could do polar opposite things, have a 180-degree turn, and the people who were attacking him for his first position, the same people would attack him for the new position, even if it was the position they were saying he should have had all along. As I've said before, and I'm sure we'll say again, over this next year, and probably for the next few years, if I had to guess, I believe we are seeing this onslaught against Governor DeSantis from the Democrats, from the media, from the left collectively, because the news media is an appendage of the Democratic Party. They are the attack dogs of the Democratic Party. Many of them sort of posturing as unbiased arbiters of truth and just bringing us the facts that is not how many journalists actually behave and act they are either overtly or unwittingly ideological warriors and their treatment of governor DeSantis is I would say one of the top examples in recent memory So when they smear DeSantis, he does a very good job at pushing back and defending himself. It's not like he needs me on this show to set the record straight. He is often very proactive about this stuff. But I think it's important to amplify the truth and reality when we have the chance to do so. And whenever this happens, we lean into the fight because I think it's a proxy fight, certainly ahead of 2024, but also can the media identify someone that they view as a future threat to the power of their tribe and their party, the Democrats, and can they destroy them based on nothing in advance? A preemptive destruction for political reasons. Can that succeed even based on untruths? And I hope the answer is no. And we want the answer to be no. So when they've come after him with falsehoods, nonsense, smears and slanders, preposterous, over-the-top overreactions. We have fought them tooth and nail here on this show at every turn. I think the 60 Minutes hit job was probably the worst example of this, where they tried to turn a bipartisan, successful vaccine distribution plan in Florida into a story of corruption. When it was nothing of the sort, they knew it was nothing of the sort, they ignored even Democrats telling them it was nothing of the sort, and they ran with it anyway. Because the goal is to get DeSantis, not to inform the public. So the most recent examples of this that I want to bring to you, there's a bunch. So over the holidays, there was this weird, uh, where's Ron hashtag 
where I guess the media and the Democrats were saying, oh, gosh, he's missing in action. Where's this guy? He's on vacation. There's an Omicron surge, and the governor's nowhere to be found. Now, around the same time, the president of the United States, you know, Mr. Crush the Virus, that guy, right? We're going to we're gonna shut down the virus, that president. He was uh, out at the beach on vacation. That didn't matter because they like Joe Biden. They like his party. They're not afraid of Joe Biden. They are afraid of Ron DeSantis. So where's Ron? Well, it turned out he was working at the Capitol every day. Wasn't doing a bunch of public events, but he was working every day. He was also accompanying his wife to cancer treatment. She has breast cancer. So that was a great look for them. We also had Jen Psaki sliming DeSantis the other day from the White House podium, saying that he has not encouraged people in his state to get vaccinated. That's absolutely not true. In fact, Florida has the highest vaccine rate of any state carried by Trump in 2020. And they're above the national average on vaccination. DeSantis presided over vaccinations of senior citizens live on Fox News. He was criticized for that. Why is he doing it on Fox News? He prioritized the vulnerable seniors at first when other states weren't doing that. Back then, the CDC guidance was not to do that, shockingly. He did it anyway because it was obviously the right call. He was criticized for that. Then he distributed vaccines through Publix, the most popular store in the whole state. It's all over the state. That was supposedly corruption. You see how this works. Well, the latest example, beyond this uh, where's Ron nonsense, and you may have seen it, there are headlines and there's you know some, some of these Democratic would-be opponents for DeSantis ahead of 2022, they're saying this monster, Ron DeSantis, allowed a bunch of COVID tests to expire. They were just sitting in a warehouse, and he let them expire, and now we have a shortage, and it's his fault. Now, of course, they're trying to deflect and distract and detract from the wide Biden administration failure on testing. But the story is that Ron DeSantis, I guess for some reason, just Mr. Malevolent, incompetent, doesn't care about human life, or whatever the, whatever the attack is, he didn't want these tests to go to people for some reason, so that he let them expire, and this was this horrible, callous failure of leadership. In fact, that is untrue. What happened was Florida had stocked up on lots and lots of tests during their summer wave, which was Delta. Then the surge went up, it came down, cases plummeted, and demand for tests obviously plummeted as well. Now, the tests expired in September. When they expired, there is a requirement, if you want to keep using them or have the opportunity to use them in the future, you have to seek a waiver with the feds to still use them and say, Technically, it's past the expiration date. Can we still use those? Florida went through the process. They sought the waiver. They got the waiver, which extended it till December. They have now seeked or sought, I should say, the waiver again to extend it further, and they are waiting for that waiver. That's what happened. They weren't just put in a warehouse and forgotten about or withheld from the public for some reason. That's what the storyline was. That's what the stupid narrative was. In fact, it was just DeSantis and his administration in the state of Florida playing it by the book and playing by the rules. And by the way, I guarantee you, you know this and I know this to be true. 
Let's say he hadn't done that. Let's say he had just been like, I'm going to cut through the bread tape. I don't care that they're expired. I'm told that they're still going to work just fine. We need these tests, so I'm releasing the tests. You would have these exact same jerks losing their minds over anti-science, reckless Ron DeSantis, not following protocol, and foisting expired, faulty tests upon the people of Florida. That's what the storyline would be under that circumstance. He didn't follow the rules. We have scientific protocols for a reason, and he ignored them because he ignores science. And now he's got these fake expired tests all over the state, and blood is on his hands. No matter what he does, blood is always on his hands, according to this crowd. He was seeking another expiration waiver. That's what happened. And you wouldn't know that from some of these ridiculous headlines, breathless tweets, etc. Then you had this other thing that DeSantis said, where everyone decided to dunk on him. He was talking about testing people who aren't symptomatic and saying this probably isn't a great idea. In Cut 16 at a recent appearance, here's what DeSantis said. The lowest value testing is just people who are just kind of going to test to say, hey, am I sick? Now think about it. Before COVID, did anyone go out and seek testing to determine if they were sick? It's usually you feel like you're sick and then you get tested to determine what you're what you maybe have come down with. And so this is kind of a new thing where they've been saying just go out and test all the time and Again, you're free to do it, but I think what what the the DOH guidance from Florida is saying is that is unlikely to yield very much clinical value for you, and it also creates a lot of second-order follow-up problems. It's essentially a lockdown by stealth. So people were all over this saying, oh, look at this moron DeSantis. He's saying before COVID, no one would go get tested for things if they weren't feeling sick. Ever heard of pre-screening for cancer, Ron? This is so stupid. That's obviously not the point that he's making. Ron DeSantis, no one else, is opposed to early detection screening for things like cancer. The man's wife has cancer. For God's sake, just like listen to yourself for a second before you launch into some moronic diatribe because you hate the guy and fear him so much. What he's talking about is like, let's say there was an epidemic of strep throat. And for some reason, we were running short as a country on strep throat throat tests. Would you rush out and go get a strep test? If you didn't even have a sore throat, would that make any sense? No, it would not. Because resources are scant. Now, some of this goes back to the failure of the White House and the Biden administration. This wouldn't be an issue. He wouldn't be talking about this, DeSantis wouldn't, if we had a glut of available free or low-cost testing, which is what we should have at this point. But we don't. The White House and the administration made their decisions, so we have scarce resources. And what DeSantis is saying is, if people aren't feeling sick, rushing out to go try to find a test is not helpful. But he's being attacked as like pro-cancer and anti-science because he said almost the same thing that other leaders are saying. In New York, for example, the governor saying, please stop going to emergency rooms for tests. 
if you have mild symptoms or no symptoms. We know you're curious. We know you're anxious, but you're clogging up these places and you're using up tests. It doesn't make sense. Don't do it. That's New York. We've seen the same thing in Washington, D.C. in recent weeks with officials issuing similar warnings. Common sense. But not when Ron DeSantis does it. No, no. Because it's always a lose-lose for him in the minds of these folks because they are not operating in good faith for political reasons. One more thing to say about DeSantis and his leadership on education. We'll get to that when we return. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Well, when COVID first hit, one of the most important things for me to determine was, what does this mean for our kids? And is it something that they need to be kept out of school for? And after five, six weeks of this, it was pretty clear based on the data we were seeing in Europe, kids needed to be in school. So we made sure in that 2020 school year, we had all the kids in person. We gave parents an option if they wanted their kid virtual, but the schools had to offer in-person instruction five days a week. And that was one of the best decisions we could have made. I think the places that had extended school closures are going to rue that day for years and years down the line. Back on the Guy Benson show, that's Governor DeSantis on Fox News over the weekend with Mark Levin talking about his approach to education during the pandemic, which has been almost unfailingly correct. And it was not necessarily popular. It was not necessarily in the good graces of the uh, sort of standard bearers of elite opinion, but based on the data and the well-being of kids at the time, and certainly in retrospect, it was correct. Juxtapose that approach with the so-called pro-science people in many places, what they've done. DeSantis went on, kept 15. We also signed into law earlier in 2021 a Parents' Bill of Rights, which said parents are in the driver's seat when it comes to the health, the education and upbringing of their kids. And so that impacts issues like you can't force a kid to wear a mask to school. And so we stood up with parents for parents' rights on that. Yes, we've been battled on all those. The teachers unions in 2020, they sued me to try to close the schools. We beat the unions on that. And then some of the school districts fought us because they wanted to force mass these young kids. And we were able to win uh, those battles and win with parents. They were wrong. He was right. You want to know why the left can't stand him and fear him? You know why he's exciting to many conservatives? Exhibit A. Those answers right there. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. 
Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. If you miss any of the live show, we are joined now by Brad Raffensberger, who is the Secretary of State down in Georgia. He's author of the book, Integrity Counts. And Mr. Secretary, welcome back to the show. I don't know if you're a bulldog yourself, but I know many people in your state are wearing big smiles today after what happened in Indianapolis. So congrats to you and them, or at least anyone who's a Bulldog fan. Well, everyone in Georgia is a Bulldog fan. That was a tremendous win for Georgia. And it was an exciting game. It was a fun game to watch, too. But yeah, the first half was a little boring. It was, but it just shows you what grit, hard work, and character can do for you. And they came through. That's true. Fourth quarter, very exciting. Our man Joey Jones will join us at the end of the show to talk more about that game. I want to talk to you, Mr. Secretary, about a few things. The president and the vice president are both in your state today. In fact, moments away, they are going to be giving uh, speeches about the need for a federal takeover of election laws. And they're doing this under the guise of what they call voting rights. It's not subtle. They're doing it in Georgia because they view Georgia as the poster child for a Republican state that's cracking down on voting rights or limiting voting rights. This has been the lie about Georgia since you all passed and implemented your bill. There were endless untruths told about it. President Biden himself called it worse than Jim Crow, which is just totally ahistorical and actually very insulting. But they've selected your state again to come down there, beat the drum for federal action, a federal takeover, and even to blow up the U.S. Senate in order to do it with the filibuster change that they're advocating. It doesn't look like they have the votes for any of it, but this is an opportunity for them to try to get out there and talk to the base and try to persuade people. What is your reaction to what the president and vice president are expected to say today? What are they getting wrong about Georgia? And what do you think about their alleged remedy at the federal level? Well, it's an attempt to weaken election security. H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 would allow for same-day registration and do away with photo ID. And as soon as you do that, you open up the door for fraud and also for non-citizen voting. And that's why today I said that we need to have a constitutional, U.S. constitutional amendment that only American citizens vote in our elections. You see in New York, San Francisco, and now today San Jose is talking about having non-citizens voting. Over The large majority of Americans believe only American citizens should vote in our elections. Americans want to pick their leaders. And then we photo ID is supported by over 80 percent of all uh, Americans and supported by all demographic groups and both a majority of both political party. We need to ban ballot harvesting is another one that's supported by all Americans. And if you look at what they're doing, they'll actually destroy the faith in the integrity of our elections. And our proposals that we have in Georgia, and once I just outlined there, will restore faith in the integrity of our elections. It also strengthens security. And that's the, the balance you want to strike, accessibility with security so everyone has confidence in the results. What they're talking about, the Democrats in Washington, led by the president and the vice president, this is what they're going to be preening about down in Georgia today. They're talking about repealing state laws, so taking this away from the states, repealing voter ID requirements, Uh, imposing ballot harvesting, which is this crazy practice that should be illegal everywhere. It's legal some places like California. And it's pretty extraordinary that they are doing this in the name of voting rights, quote-unquote. And I've noticed, and this is something you and I have talked about in the past, Mr. Secretary, 
President Biden decided to do this in Georgia because of the law that you passed down there. The new law in Georgia, the new voting regime in Georgia, is significantly more generous when it comes, for example, to early voting than we saw in pre-pandemic status quo all over the country in a lot of states. For example, the president's home state of Delaware, for the longest time, they had no early voting. They had all sorts of what they would call draconian voter suppression laws on the books. They finally introduced some early voting in Delaware, but it's still half the amount that the new law allows in Georgia. Why doesn't President Biden go to Delaware to give this harangue about voter suppression and voting rights? Well, you make a very good point. We have more early voting mandate, all mandated for all 159 counties, 17 days. Any county that wants to have Sunday voting can have two Sundays, 19 days. That's more than New York, New Jersey, and Delaware. We've also, for the absentee ballot, we've added photo ID. They've been using photo ID for absentee ballots in Minnesota, which is a liberal state, for 11 years now. So we are going to photo ID because it's an objective measure. Texas has done the same as us, and we think that's a nonpartisan, bipartisan, you know, objective measure. But we get sued, and yet Minnesota has not been sued. So there's a double standard here. The Democrats can do what they want in their states, but Republicans can't have the appropriate guardrails. But if you look at it's been, never been easier to vote in Georgia. We have registration through Department of Driver Services. They do a robust citizenship check, as they should, to make sure only American citizens are voting in Georgia. And then we have record registrations. And we have 5 million people of our 7.5 million people vote in the presidential race. Yeah, that look, was one I, more than the 2018 cycle. I understand why they want to use Georgia as a bogeyman and Texas as a bogeyman, but it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny based on the actual facts of what the voting laws are. They have to rely on a cartoon character that doesn't actually reflect what you guys have done in Georgia to try to attack it and to try to justify this federal takeover that is packed, you know, forcing taxpayers to fund political campaigns. It's just a disastrous series of proposals that the president has not only endorsed, he's using his dwindling political strength to try to push this stuff while maligning Georgia in a dishonest way. And he's also calling for a rules change blowing up the rules of the U.S. Senate in order to get this done, even though they are at least two votes short of that in the U.S. Senate. So it just seems like a a big political festival, a whole political exercise here, the point of which I don't really understand because my understanding, and maybe you can shed some light on this, Mr. Secretary, and my guest is the Secretary of State from Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, My understanding is a bunch of the so-called voting rights groups in Georgia out on the left are boycotting this event today for Biden. And Stacey Abrams, who's running for governor, who, of course, ran last time, lost, refused to concede that she actually lost, spread the lie that she had been robbed. And the Democratic Party embraced that lie. I know that they embrace some election lies while being horrified by other election lies. I think we should be against all election lies, including Stacey Abrams' repeated lies. But she's running for governor, and she's not going to show up at this event with the president and vice president of the United States in her political party. They say it's a scheduling conflict. I don't believe that for a second. This is political tactics. She's snubbing it for some reason or keeping her distance. There's other people boycotting because they're mad at the lack of action. It seems like this is not even one big happy family over on the Democratic side when it comes to this dishonest push. 
Well, I do know that President Biden has had several failures. First one was Afghanistan, and that was just an embarrassment, uh, a stain on America, but really on his leadership. Reminds me of uh, Vietnam, 1975. And then you look at what's going on on the border. Over two, two million people have come across illegally. And then you look at the inflation that we have now that we're fighting supply chain disruptions. And then Bill Back Better, his big plan, you know, went down in flames. So he's just really looking and grasping at straws. And this is perhaps leaning into his far left, you know, base. But his election policies would undermine election integrity. And so that's why I've said that we need American citizens only vote, photo ID, ban ballot harvesting. The only person that should ever touch your ballot is you, the voter. And then the election official that receives that ballot. That is common sense reform. And all of those issues are supported by a large majority of American people in both political parties yes. and every demographic group. That, yeah, except so in there, they would be reforms. and they would not be allowed under what the Democrats are proposing. And by the way, ballot harvesting would be some third party person could show up and collect your ballot and a bunch of other random people's ballots. And they then with a chain of custody that God knows where they're going or who's handling this stuff, then they show up and drop the ballot somewhere else. That is ripe for fraud and abuse, and it should not be allowed. It's allowed in California, which is nuts. It's not allowed elsewhere for good reason. I want to just come back to something you just said there, though, Mr. Secretary, because you said Biden is grasping at straws here for something to talk about politically. He's going to demonize Georgia. He's going to lie about what happened. He's going to try to justify uh, this terrible power grab in the name of voting rights. What's odd, coming back to Stacey Abrams, is of all the straws to grasp, this is like her, this is her pet issue, right? Her whole, her whole campaign, her whole political aura is built around the lie that she was robbed of an election last time through voter suppression. So she's dedicated her whole grift and a very successful one at that to getting out the vote and claiming victimhood status and saying that this was all a bunch of Republican abuses and not telling the truth, what Biden is highlighting is something that she supports. He is he is pandering directly to what her number one issue has been, and yet she isn't showing up for the event. And, I mean, look, you've been in politics a while. If the president and vice president are at an event in your state and you would like to be there and they're championing your issue if there was some sort of scheduling conflict short of a wedding of like your child or a funeral of a parent you move heaven and earth to change your schedule to show up and be there unless you don't want to be well i guess you know georgia politics better than i do is stacy abrams looking at this and saying i don't want to annoy the hardcore progressives who are frustrated with Biden for not going far enough and not being radical enough. I also don't want to annoy a bunch of other Georgia voters who have turned very sour on Joe Biden. His job approval rating is not good in the state of Georgia. I don't want to be too closely linked to him if I want to win the governorship later this year. So maybe it's just best for me to stay away. That's my read on it. Do you think I'm off? Well, uh, I don't really uh, get into Democrat uh, Party policies. I'm a conservative Republican, so I don't know what they're doing. All right. I just know that we've been we've been pushing back on Stacey Abrams' stolen election claims. You know, she lost in 2018 fair and square. I've written about it. And she actually poll tested the word 
voter suppression in 2014 with her group of people. They've used it as a vote getter, but also they've raised over $100 million as using that you know, false flag out there. And so it's time that you know, liberals acknowledge she lost fair and square, and it's time that she would actually acknowledge that she lost fair and square by 55,000 votes. Yeah, well, and I hope so she loses. task. Yeah, no, you have. And you've been very clear on this. And it's interesting. A lot of the folks who on the left and in the media who really respected you and what you were saying about Trump and the things that he was saying that weren't true in Georgia, they loved that. But when you said the same thing and were telling the truth about Stacey Abrams, they're not as thrilled because, as I say, they are willing to indulge or fully embrace certain lies as long as it happens to align with their political preferences, which I think is very unfortunate. She lost fair and square last time. I hope she loses fair and square again this time, preferably by even more. We'll see. It's a very closely divided state, as you know, uh, with some very, very tight elections in 2020 down in Georgia. Last question, and it has to do with this issue, and you talked about it at the very top, the move by New York City to allow non-citizens to vote in municipal elections. And they're doing it in San Francisco as well. You say there are other deep blue cities looking at it. I think this is why a lot of Americans, not just conservatives, are concerned about democratic governance. Massive overreach. They say, oh, we're about voting rights. We're about protecting the right to vote. We're against voter suppression. And then here they are wanting to extend the franchise to non-U.S. citizens. And I don't think it's overly cynical to wonder Do they ultimately want non-citizens voting in federal elections? Do they want illegal immigrants to vote in elections? Do they want to create this patchwork of very confusing rules where you can vote in some elections, but technically you can't in others, where it's very hard to enforce for these elections officials in some of these places? I think that the cynical take from critics of this idea is entirely defensible. Your take. If you end up with non-citizen voting, it destroys the social social fabric of America. In Georgia right now, it's against the law you know, for non-citizens to vote, but we don't have a constitutional amendment. So I've asked the General Assembly this upcoming session to pass a constitutional amendment that only you know, Georgians who are American system, citizens can ever vote in our elections. Because that's very important, because we have some very liberal you know, cities that might consider that at some point and then push to change state laws. You never know what happens. But when you have a constitutional change, then the Constitution, it's a, it's a more difficult issue to, to have one put into effect, but also to change it. But the, the large majority of all Americans say this is common sense. Only American citizens should be voting elections. You don't want someone just, you know, flying in, been there for 31 days, and now they can vote in a local election. It doesn't make sense. It can really affect the whole, you know, ability of a city to run their operations just because you have people that really haven't, you know, been American citizens. They haven't lived there for a while. And so it's just really destructive to the confidence you could have in elections. Yep. It's an issue of national unity, national sovereignty, and common sense. We're against illegal immigration. It should not be rewarded. It should not be incentivized. We're in favor of legal immigration, and there's a process to go through, and there are some rights and privileges that must be reserved only for full citizens, natural born or naturalized. That's what it takes, for example, to vote 
and elect the people who make our policies in this country. That should not be terribly controversial. But here we go. This is the debate that is happening actively. And some of the slippery slope arguments aren't terribly far-fetched for some of the reasons that you just mentioned. Brad Raffensperger, Georgia Secretary of State down there. We appreciate your time, sir. And we'll be watching the president and the vice president. I'm sure you'll have a lot of disagreements in what they have to say. But we appreciate you coming here to preemptively set the record straight. Thank you, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, we are awaiting President Biden and Vice President Harris down in Georgia. They're going to speak on so-called voting rights. They're running a little late, unsurprisingly. I'm just saying this. We are not going to cover this feature. We're not going to take it live. It will be filled with dishonesty and demagoguery and radicalism calling for the blowing up of the filibuster this is a guy who ran on unity and healing the country and stopping the virus he hasn't stopped the virus he has not unified the country and now he's embracing a left-wing radical idea which is blowing up the legislative filibuster in the senate to pass a federal takeover of elections that is unconstitutional according to many that has horrible flaws on substance And that is not necessary. It's based on this pretext, this nonsense, a moral panic, a fake excuse on a non-existent crisis. That's what he's doing. So we're not going to take it live and let him just say all this stuff. We will monitor it. And then we'll probably tomorrow respond point by point to some of the nonsense that he says. I think it is fascinating that Stacey Abrams cannot manage to work her schedule as to accommodate this event and show up. It's her, as I was saying in the last segment, it's her pet issue. But political fortunes have changed in Georgia. He is not popular, so she's staying away. She also doesn't want to anger the base in some ways also. Because some of them are boycotting the speech. What a mess this president has made so many fronts. And the hypocrisy from these Senate Democrats on the filibuster, it's just dizzying. Their positions change constantly depending on their expedient interests. It's pathetic. It's embarrassing. You'd think they'd have some shame. Many of them evidently do not. Emily Campagno coming up. It's The Guy Benson Show. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on a busy Tuesday here on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Easy to remember. GuyBensonShow.com. Everything you need to know about the program, how to listen live, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, how to listen after the fact on the free podcast. GuyBensonShow.com. I'll be on Kennedy tonight, Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you there over on the TV side. Fox News alert as we get going here in our middle hour. The Dow closes up 183 points today, ending the day at 36,252. Also, one other piece of breaking news. I saw this report, and this is exciting. Dr. Marty McCary, our Fox News colleague, Johns Hopkins physician, surgeon, professor of health. We had him on the show literally yesterday. He has been tapped by Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin in Virginia to be part of his medical advisory team, which is excellent news 
for the people of Virginia. Boy, talk about the difference an election can make. From Ralph Northam and Terry McAuliffe to Glenn Youngkin using the intelligence and the wisdom and the perspective and the context, the nuance, the common sense of Dr. McCary in helping shape Virginia's path forward on the pandemic, thank God. <laughs> I mean, from my perspective, thank God Yunkin won. Thank goodness for this huge sea change in Virginia politics. Elections have consequences, including good consequences, I would say, in this case. So we'll have to get McCary back on to talk about that sometime soon. We should get Yunkin back on, actually, as he will be sworn in as governor in just a matter of days change coming to Virginia. Hopefully a lot more change after the midterms elsewhere around the country. Let's bring in Emily Campagno, Fox News contributor. She's an attorney. She's co-host of Outnumbered. She's host of Crimes That Changed America on Fox Nation. Emily, great to have you here. Welcome. Guy, thank you so much. And I'm looking forward to sharing the screen with you tonight, too, at 7 p.m. on Kennedy. So we'll be there together. I will look forward to that. Fabulous. Now, I want to talk politics and law with you here in a moment. But first, some people know this about you. Some people don't. You were back in the day, an earlier part of your career. You were an NFL cheerleader for the at the time Oakland Raiders. And I know that you remain a huge Raiders fan. And we have to talk about what happened on Sunday Night Football, because we'll get into the College national championship game later in the show today with Georgia beating Alabama. That was last night. The previous night, I have to say, it must have been one of the most buzzed about, memorable, regular season NFL games, I don't know, in the last decade with all of the drama and all the things at stake and the possibility of a tie. And you've got the Raiders, your Raiders now in Vegas, and they're playing Los Angeles, and all the fans elsewhere are playing very close attention and sort of curious what does this mean could we be left out of the playoffs if if this ends in a tie i would imagine you were probably watching that game that was absolutely wild it was incredible and keep in mind too you know it was at allegiant stadium because of the pandemic the official opening of las vegas raiders there was pushed back a year so this was their final home game of this 2022 season and to end it like that was insane but i have to tell you guys the sort of funny part, as you know, sports betting just became legal in New York on Saturday. So I literally, for the first time in my life, bet. And I bet the parlay on the game. I bet the take, just the, the fact that the Raiders would, would win, you know, ride or die, I bet on the Raiders. And then I also <laughs> bet on the under. And so I was hoping that the game would not reach, you know, more than 48 points on the board with either team. So it was sort of an insane experience for me to be out at a fun New York sports bar with a group of friends watching the absolute insanity and excitement that was that game while knowing I had all that money on the line and have this weird conflict of like being <laughs> elated at here on the East Coast, you know, one in the morning. I'm like, this is insane how yeah, it went late. games are played here. And then also being like, no, because I lost all the money. But it was so fun. I can't wait until Saturday's game against the Bengals. And um, I have to say I'm, I'm – 
disappointed. You know, it wasn't the Steelers. Like, we really have to dig in on Saturday, that's for sure. Um, obviously, we don't have home field advantage either. But listen, I'm doing more than crossing my fingers, and I'm looking forward to celebrating another win, guys. Well, we'll see. And, like, I will say, because you mentioned the Steelers, nowhere were the stomachs in knots more tightly than the city of Pittsburgh late into the night on Saturday, or on Sunday, rather, because their playoff hopes were riding and resting on not a tie. And it looked like there was going to be a tie. Then there was that weird timeout taken. Then you guys ended up deciding to go for the win anyway, and then you won. It was it was just crazy and so much drama. Game was on NBC, and again, it was one of the more memorable regular season games in a very long time. Last question about this, and it's it's a bigger picture question, based on your rooting interest and your loyalty to the Raiders. And again, you work for them. You're a cheerleader for them. What is the reaction of the fan base in general about the move to Vegas? Because sometimes when a franchise leaves your city, it feels like a betrayal. You can never really feel the same way about them again. People sometimes are like bitter. I'm going to be against them. I'm rooting against. Or is that the case with the fan base out there? Or are they just sort of embracing the Raiders, reconciling with the fact that they're now based in Vegas? They've been welcomed, of course, with open arms by Vegas, which is turning into an awesome sports town at this point between them and the Golden Knights in hockey. What is your general sense of, like, not just the new fan base in Vegas, but the OG Oakland Raiders fan base and how they feel about the franchise? Right. We have a saying that what happens in Vegas started in Oakland. And I think, generally (laughs) speaking, it's only support. We are all ride or die. The same people that supported them in Oakland, you know, are now driving down to Vegas and supporting them there. In that game guy that I was watching Saturday night, I literally recognized a ton of, we call them super fans in the audience. I recognized them from Oakland. So all of that, you know, 99.9%, 100% Raider Nation, um, ride or die. But I will say, being, being from that particular community, being from right there, being born in Oakland, raised in El Cerrito, right there in the Bay Area, we were devastated for that local community that because of local politics, the team and the city could not come to a consensus in that stadium, the Coliseum, and had to leave. I think for the health of the franchise, we saw that Raiders had to go. And But I, I think that the collateral damage is significant, and it should never be overlooked, and that the city of Oakland and that surrounding area, you know, we lost the Warriors, right? They went across the pond, and they play in San Francisco, yep. and the Oakland A's are even trying to move to Fremont. And so, you know, picture if all of you listening in your, in your beloved hometown, you went from having three sports teams in one, one complex area that you love, and all of a sudden, two out of three are gone, and one is trying to leave. And to see that sort of gaping hole and have such a loss in the affected area, which traditionally are black and brown communities there, um, for lack of a better term, it just sucks, right? But, but like I said, the, for the health of the franchise itself, I've seen a spark and a cohesiveness out of Vegas that's really exciting. And um, we've had a few setbacks this season, as you know, off the field with that mm-hmm. team. And the fact oh, yeah. that we're playing so well, yeah, notwithstanding coach. them, like we're only excited for the future and what's to come. Yeah, the whole Gruden mess. I'll say this last thing. You and I were both speaking at an event. Gosh, when was it? Maybe six months ago. Time flies. But we were both at the same event speaking out in Colorado, Colorado Springs, and as a very funny troll, they welcomed you to Colorado with a custom Campagno 
Denver Broncos jersey. They knew that rivalry. They knew that you probably were going to burn that jersey, but they wanted to troll you anyway. I thought that was a pretty good move. Hysterical. And since then, <laughs> the Raiders-Broncos matchups, you know, I get teased with, hey, are you ready for that bet? You're going to have to put that jersey on. It's just so funny. But I, I, I loved that moment. And, you know, that's the thing about sports, and that's the thing about the, especially in these COVID times, um, the fact when sports could continue, that is our joy. That's our common language. It's so fun yep. to spar off of just teams and not have it be politics and things that people get so, um, you know, that the, the divisiveness just runs deep to the core. Like, sports reminds us that we can be on different teams, but ultimately we're on the same team. I love that. I think that's exactly right. I'm glad you said it. We talk some sports on this show for that reason, and I'm an unapologetic sports fan, and I feel even less apologetic about it now that you said what you just said. Well said, indeed, Emily Campagno. Let's quickly talk politics, though. We only have about two minutes left, so we'll make it quick. You probably saw the exchange yesterday, our colleague Peter Ducey asking the question of Jen Psaki. You know, he was triple-vaxxed and then got COVID. She was triple-vaxxed and then got COVID. He said, why does the president keep calling this a pandemic of the unvaccinated when clearly millions of vaccinated people are affected, particularly by Omicron? She came back. She said, well, look, you're 17 times more likely to go to the hospital if you're not vaccinated, 20 times more likely to die of COVID if you don't get vaccinated. That's a fair point. Those are good statistics that they speak powerfully in favor of getting vaccinated. That's still different then the talking point of calling this a pandemic of the unvaccinated at this point, that seems like an outdated talking point at this stage and definitely counterproductive. I wonder what you make of that. And then on the legal side, the fact that you have just almost ubiquitous breakthrough cases of fully vaccinated people with Omicron, does that weaken the legal case for some of the mandates and vaccine passports and that sort of thing that are being debated in fact, just in the last few days, for example, at the support. I'll start with your second question first, because I think it's important for viewers, for listeners to hear that aspect. So at its heart, there are sort of two concerns before the courts right now. One is one of authority, and then one is one of the application of an emergency rule. So in the authority issue, no, it doesn't play into part at all, because whether or not the power is vested in Congress, or the executive branch, you know, that, that's a determination regardless of the necessity. But I think in the, in the more narrow application, let's take OSHA, for example, their specific statute, the, the, the statute that Congress wrote for OSHA, granting them essentially emergency powers over their workforce, Interesting. Specifically, it specifically applies in an emergency situation. And it talks about in a, in a grave exposure and in a grave um, challenge risk in the yeah, and, and what does the emergency look like now given this change i think that's a really interesting legal point hate to cut you off emily but we are up on a break thank you for joining us let's do it again very soon fun conversation with emily campagna i'm guy benson still to come on the show today congressman kevin brady of texas upcoming bill hammer later on and a special national championship cameo appearance from joey jones that's all later But first, I want to bring you this story. You might call it a factor follow-up. This was a huge controversy just a number of weeks ago, and it kind of seemed to disappear, but there's now an update. Remember that letter from that school board association 
that went to the Biden administration, went to the DOJ, which then created this memo from the Justice Department involving the FBI to have the heavy hand of government get involved in supposed terrorist threats, domestic terrorist threats, because of alleged unrest or harsh words or threats emanating from school board meetings. We remember that. I think it was pretty clear what that was at the time. It was an attempt to silence and intimidate. This issue was hurting Democrats. They were worried about, for example, the Virginia election, and they decided that they were going to get the feds involved in investigating this so-called threat. One of the big questions has been all along, where did this come from? What prompted the memo from the DOJ? They say, oh, it's just this organic expression of concern from this National School Board Association. They were so worried about what they were seeing on the ground that they reached out to us. This was not, you know, this is not our doing. This is simply a reaction, a response to a true threat that was never really plausible. You've seen state chapters of this organization disassociating themselves from the national org. You've seen people leaving and resignations. It's been a big, angry mess, as it should be. This was a totally indefensible power play on the left, and this group allowed itself to be used by progressives for political thuggery. That's what happened. Now, here's the update from today, foxnews.com. Education Secretary Cardona solicited an SBA letter comparing protesting parents to domestic terrorists, according to an email. An official from that organization said the controversial letter followed, quote, a request by Secretary Cardona. Here's the story. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona solicited the much-criticized letter from the National School Boards Association that compared protesting parents over school closures and racialized curricula and the issue on sexual assault, all those issues, right? We've talked about those, the ugliness and the cover-up in Virginia, all of that stuff. Turns out that the Biden education secretary solicited that letter that then went on to the DOJ. This according to an email exchange reviewed by Fox News. The exchange indicates Cardona was more involved with the letter's creation than previously known. President Biden's Department of Justice relied on the NSBA letter, which suggested using the Patriot Act against parents, in creating its own memo directing the FBI to mobilize in support of local education officials. In an October 5th email, the secretary-treasurer of this organization recounted to the interim CEO that they were, quote, told by officers that he was writing a letter to provide information to the White House from a request by Secretary Cardona. Previous emails had revealed that the NSBA was in contact with the White House and Justice Department in the weeks before it publicly sent the letter. There's a group made up of parents called Parents Defending Education. They're outraged. They were able to get these emails through a FOIA request, and their president, Nicole Neely, said, quote, should this allegation be true, again, this is based on their own emails, it would reveal that this administration's pretextual war on parents came from the highest levels. So there needs to be more investigation of this, more questions asked of Cardona. It looks potentially like you had one cabinet-level secretary in the Biden administration trying to drum up a letter that would give a reason, a pretext, for another cabinet secretary 
the chief law enforcement officer, the attorney general, to sick the feds on a bunch of parents based on a made-up controversy that was cooked up inside the Biden administration. An absolute abuse of power. Already, it would look even worse now if both ends of it originated essentially at the White House. It's another good reason to have Republicans win Congress this November. They can actually hold hearings and hold the Biden administration accountable and bring people up and force them under oath and ask tough questions in a way that the Democrats don't want to do with their own party. They want to play defense. They want to sweep stuff under the rug. They want to support the team, protect the tribe. If you want real accountability, you need the other team in charge of one of the branches, particularly when you've got an administration running the show that is so often enabled and defended on Capitol Hill by their fellow Democrats. We continue to track this story here on The Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast free every day. Thank you for listening. Catch me tonight on Kennedy, Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern Hour. With us now is Congressman Kevin Brady of Texas, the 8th Congressional District in the Lone Star State. He's also the ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. Congressman, it is great to have you back on the show. Happy New Year. Thank you, Guy. I hope you had a, hope you had a great holidays. Well, we survived. We had a lot of COVID in the House. Everyone's okay. So we're very grateful and thankful for that. And likewise to you, we hope everything went well. I want to start here with a political question. We've discussed your decision to retire after a storied career in Congress. You're not going to seek re-election this year. And you've explained your reasons why. And it's not because you feel like Republicans are in a bad position to perhaps hand you a gavel back as a chairman of this very important committee. That seems relatively, if not very likely at this point. This is just sort of a lifespan decision for you. Meanwhile, it's what well over two dozen of your Democratic colleagues have made a similar call. It seems like that's less coincidental and perhaps more rooted in some political writing on the wall. That's my suspicion. That's the conventional wisdom, at least. Do you agree? Guy, you are right on target. They are abandoning the ship because they know what's coming. Uh, they are going deep into the minority because their agenda has just been so radical and uh, partisan. Uh, and hasn't, they haven't done one thing to help American families. In fact, it's been just the opposite. So, yeah, it is unusual to see this many Democrats, including committee chairmen and appropriations leaders and members of the Congressional Black Caucus, all you know, racing out the door so early in this election season. And as you know from your experience, that this is one of the big, that's one of the big indicators of a major change in the majority in, in, in the House or the Senate. You know, and I've seen a few people out there on social media trying to counterspin this thing, saying, well, look, a lot of these Democrats, I think it's 26 or 27 of them now, who've announced they're not going to seek re-election, most of them are from safe Democratic districts. So they were really not in much of a position where they were looking at their reelect and saying, oh, gosh, you know, I could lose or, you know, in a risky spot. These are pretty safe seats in a lot of these cases, at least. But I don't think that's really the consideration here, right, for a lot of them. It's not, can I get reelected? It's, do I want to get reelected 
to then serve in the minority, which is a lot less fun. You get a lot less done, generally, in the minority. I think that's got to be part of the calculus here. I think so, too. And, and by the, yeah, and that fits some of those who are retiring, but there are a number of them who are in competitive seats that, frankly, sure. we felt pretty confident and feel Stephanie pretty confident. Stephanie Murphy we in Florida. Yeah, yeah, Ron Kind, that we would win in, in uh, flip that way. So, And I think we're going to see more of those uh, announcements before – you know, this summer, I would think some people have really late primaries, as you know. And so I think we'll see some more of that. But but we are not taking anything for granted as conservatives or Republicans. So we're keeping our eye on the ball. So this is a year where we continue to, to, to repel the Biden agenda, fight as hard as we can in the House to stop this, but also to reveal exactly how damaging all his policies are as to families, whether it's inflation, uh, fentanyl overdoses, uh, just a whole list of things that are really we're in crime, uh, worrying Americans. And so, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do between now and uh, the November election. You know, Congressman, I'm looking at some of these news reports over on the Senate side where Chuck Schumer is talking about maybe forcing all of his members to go on the record in a formal way and vote on blowing up the filibuster, which most of them have said in the past is unconscionable. They would never do it. Republicans would be killing democracy if they did it. Now they're almost all lining up behind Schumer with a few notable exceptions publicly and reportedly a few others who are uh, really concerned about this behind closed doors. They're not really sure if they want to do it, but Schumer might force them to do it and put them on the record in a losing effort. They don't have the votes to actually nuke the filibuster. They are at least two votes shy. I don't exactly know what he's getting at, what the purpose of this would be, aside from, I don't know, placating the base with a vote, even though it's going to go the wrong way from the base's perspective. The reason I mention this is it kind of reminds me of what Nancy Pelosi just did a few weeks ago when she forced every single one of her members, except for one guy in Maine, all of them walked the plank and followed her orders to vote for this Build Back Better thing, which was just packed with toxic stuff, trillions in new deficits, taxpayer-funded abortion, tax cuts for millionaires, tax hikes for millions of middle-class families. I mean, it was a shockingly bad bill that was never going to actually become law, even if things had gone better in the Senate. And yet they all decided to do what Pelosi told them to do. Were you surprised that she had almost no defections for that monstrosity? I, I uh, guy, I absolutely am, uh, and especially because everyone knows that her making them walk that plank means a number of them will not be coming back uh, to Congress, will be defeated at the polls. And also, it really sort of uh, underscored our point here, which is there are very few, if any, centrists left. The Democrat Party has, has moved so far to the socialist left side of this. But I think there were different motivations here. Pelosi, Pelosi decided to make them walk the plank to show how strong a speaker she is. I think uh, Senator Schumer is doing it for the opposite reason. He's worried about a primary from yep. uh, Congresswoman uh, Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, or someone to, the base. to his left. He's yeah, yeah. To, and so he wants to show he's fighting. But one, he's going to make every one of the Democrats uh, make out publicly as a hypocrite because they've all defended the minority voice that comes with the filibuster in the Senate. And But it is part of their agenda of dismantling democratic institutions, whether it is uh, open borders, nationalizing uh, state and local elections, um, 
you know, uh, packing the court if they're angry about uh, the abortion decision that's upcoming, uh, ending the filibuster. All of this they, they've done or sought to have done more damage to, I think, our democracy this past year than any year I've been in Congress. Congressman Brady, I have to ask you about this. There are now some whispers in D.C. that the Democrats in the Biden administration might be seeking, wait for it, more COVID relief funding. What are we up to, five or six trillion dollars now? They did a two trillion dollar bill at the beginning of the Biden presidency. It was a partisan bill filled with waste and unrelated items. That's what Republicans warned about. Every Republican voted no for that reason, all the way down to the most moderate members, because it was such a wasteful bill. But trillions of dollars have been spent on COVID relief. We're looking around at the testing problems. We're looking around. There's a shortage of therapeutics. How could they possibly, with a straight face, justify asking the American people to spend even more money, given all the money that's already gone out the door. Is this not an admission of absolute incompetence and failure? It is exactly that. And, and the truth of the matter is that they're, look, that nearly $2 trillion COVID stimulus, as they called it back in March, did neither. Like a dime of every dollar actually went to the pandemic. The rest of it, wasteful spending, did nothing to stimulate the economy. That's as we the problem. know from the worst worst jobs report in the in the president's presidency uh, here in uh, in December uh, they've got a ton of money left over from that that 2 trillion dollar bill that could be applied or actually finally prioritized whether it is to the pandemic and testing all the mistakes and confidence they already have but you know the IRS just warned yesterday that there's still millions of uh, tax returns short backlogged i think uh, five to, to nine million returns. And by the way, they never put a dime toward helping anyone get their tax refund because they're focused on adding 10,000 IRS agents uh, and uh, a bank For surveillance enforcement. scheme. Yeah. So look, we know what their priorities are, and it's certainly not families getting tests for COVID and certainly not families getting their tax refund. In Texas, there's this guy, Robert Francis O'Rourke, who goes by the nicknamed Beto. You might have heard of him. He runs for office pretty frequently and loses uh, certainly statewide. And then when he was running for president as well, he's way out there on the left. He ran as a unifying centrist in Texas, then a hardcore leftist running for president. Now he wants to be governor of Texas. And I had to chuckle earlier. I saw he was tweeting attacks at Greg Abbott, the governor there in Texas. There was a long line somewhere in Austin of people waiting to get tested. And Beto was saying, this is on Greg Abbott. When you see people waiting for tests and unable to get tests, that's Abbott's fault. And, I mean, I'm trying to keep track of who's to blame here. Because it seems to me, well, it's pretty obvious. From the press and the media and the Democratic perspective, the answer is always Republicans. It doesn't matter if something's going wrong. It's the Republicans' fault. But it was the president's fault when it was Donald Trump, when things weren't going well, and then Biden campaign saying, elect me, we'll make things better, we'll get this right. And now he's made a mess of it. He's made a hash of it. And the result of that failure, this sort of shocking testing failure that's still ongoing, now I guess the Democrats have decided it's time to once again revert back to this being a state and local issue, so long as the state and local officials that can be blamed are Republicans in this case. It just... It seems so cynical and so political. I can't imagine people actually believe this beyond hardcore partisans who want to believe it. 
And they don't. And they don't. Look, Beto O'Rourke's going to get crushed by Governor Abbott for a lot of reasons, uh, including his his shift even far. Well, he pretended to run as a moderate last time, still got beat. Now we've sort of seen his true colors. And in Texas, he's just desperate for some attention on something. And he gets it from mainstream media, but no one's buying it. And the truth is, um, uh, in Texas, just as we heard over and over, it is, uh, it is not just purple, but it is uh, turning blue. We saw exactly the opposite today in Texas. We're now seeing uh, more and more Hispanics who are voting Republican and conservative uh, on the border and throughout the state. Uh, that was something Democrats had taken for granted, that they would always just vote for them. But they've seen that agenda. They don't like it. It's bad for their families. They're less safe. And so, yeah, he, he, he's desperate to try to get some traction somewhere before he's been uh, running on another cold snap, hoping there'll be another winter storm he can blame on the governor. But at that point, I'd say your, your campaign is, has run out of uh, reasons to exist. Yeah. When Joe Biden says, I'm going to shut down the virus and I'm going to do it using science and they talk about the importance of testing and all this stuff. And then they're caught flat-footed, and Biden has almost admitted that it's his fault and that he wishes he had done things differently. It is a bit of a howler for someone like O'Rourke to say, oh, yes, this federal failure is clearly the fault of Greg Abbott or Ron DeSantis, but not blue state governors because science or whatever. Final question, Congressman Brady. I want to ask you about the jobs report that you just referenced. You said it was the worst of Biden's presidency. Look, obviously it was a huge miss on jobs created. Less than half of what was expected actually materialized. On the other hand, previous months were upgraded and revised upwards in terms of a job creation. Wages are up. I know that's been canceled out by inflation, which is a huge deal. But there were some good signs in there as well. Is the economy more of a mixed bag than Republicans are willing to admit? So um, not not really, and here's why. Uh, this should have, 2021 should have been a boom year, maybe the best economy in our history, because coming out of 2020, we had life-saving vaccines. We had uh, President Trump, to his credit, had a much faster uh, recovery of the economy than anyone uh, expected. You had regions of the country reopening, and so everyone expected every economy's big numbers. As you know, it's not been that. And right now, I think the president's uh, jobs deficit, the difference between the jobs he promised from the stimulus and what we've seen, is now skyrocketed over to a million jobs uh, less uh, than his promises. The inflation issue is deadly serious, and, and the labor shortage is not getting better, and, and I'm convinced build back better. Well, not just a labor Hopefully. shortage. I mean, look at look at empty shelves at grocery stores. Oh there are gosh. still big yep. supply chain problems. There's still inflation. And to your point that you just made, I just saw some stats put out and some graphs of what the Biden administration said without the rescue plan, whatever they're calling it, the $2 trillion of spending that they passed with Democrat-only votes early last year which I guess didn't have money directed to things like testing, which is mind-blowing. But they said without that rescue plan, job growth would only be X. But with it, it would explode, and job growth would be way up here. And the actual result, the actual job growth, is below the level that they had anticipated as their warning if their bill hadn't passed. They were promising much, much bigger numbers and huge spikes in job growth thanks to their government spending bill 
They warned if you didn't pass that $2 trillion bill, then job creation would be at a lower level, like, you know, level Y. And indeed, the actual number has come in at, at Z, lower. I mean, those are their projections and their promises and therefore their problem, in my view. It is. And I will tell you, even their own favorite economic forecaster, Moody and Moody's Analytics, confirms that our economic growth would be better over the long term and inflation would be lower if we had none of the Biden bills, either the COVID stimulus march, certainly not build back better. So so bottom line is, if your economy was stronger Biden free uh, than it is uh, with all his policies, clearly you'd think you would understand you're on the wrong track. But yeah, right and now, that's based again, that's not based on your assertions as a Republican congressman. That's based on the metrics laid out by the White House and by the Democrats selling their last boondoggle as they're failing to sell their current boondoggle and build back better, which appears to be mostly dead, but you never know, which is why I'm always on guard. Congressman Kevin Brady, Republican, Texas 8, ranking Republican on the House Ways and Means Committee. Always appreciate your time and being able to chat through some of these issues with you, and we'll have you back soon. Sounds good. Take care, Guy. Kevin Brady on The Guy Benson Show, which continues after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up here in just a few moments. Bill Hemmer will join us when we return. I want to quickly give a tip of the cap to Doug Ducey, governor of Arizona. He's a Republican out there. I know we spent a lot of time talking about Florida and Governor DeSantis for all the obvious reasons, all the slings and arrows that he takes on a national level. We talk about Governor Abbott. We got into that in the previous segment, in fact, with Congressman Brady. Ducey sometimes flies a little under the radar, but some of the stuff he's doing out in Arizona is terrific. He gave his State of the State speech. He was talking about him teaming up with Governor Abbott, in fact, for a border strike force to actually try to enforce the border in a way that the federal government under President Biden will not do, just refusing to do it. But the problem is real, and Ducey was talking about that challenge and joining forces with another red state governor at the border. He also was talking about transforming Arizona into the leading state in the country, in his mind, for school choice. People talk about equity. People talk about justice. To me, one of the biggest civil rights issues in the country is equality of opportunity in education. School choice is the answer. I think it's clearer than ever, based on what we've all witnessed over the last year and a half. And Ducey was really championing it during his speech, and he made this point in Cut 17. Fifty-plus years ago, politicians stood in the schoolhouse door and wouldn't let minorities in. Today, union-backed politicians stand in the schoolhouse door and won't let minorities out. Pretty powerful thing to say, and that needs to change. School choice is the way. They get it in Arizona. I hope they continue to get it in Arizona and elsewhere around the country. So two cheers there for Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona. Final hour coming up, as I mentioned, Bill Hemmer on tap. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
It's the happy hour on this Tuesday. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We encourage you to listen live as the show airs. If you can't, the podcast is always free on demand. GuyBensonShow.com and wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be on Kennedy tonight in the 7 p.m. Eastern Hour, Fox Business Network. So I'll catch you on the TV side as well. But for all things radio, it's GuyBensonShow.com. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Told you yesterday that a major expansion into many states is forthcoming. Cannot wait to fill you in on those details. I only have a vague picture myself, but it's coming from what I hear. TheLongDrink.com, so delicious. Check it out. Find out where it's sold already near you. Expanding, of course. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. We are joined now by Bill Hemmer, co-host of America's Newsroom. Monday through Friday, 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel, along with Dana Perino. Also, be sure to check out his podcast, Hemmer Time. And, Bill, it's great to have you back. Happy New Year. Good to talk to you, sir. Thank you, brother. Nice to be back with you, and a happy 22 to you. I heard a rumor that you just recently got over COVID. Is that right? What was that like? I I had a small spell. Maybe it was the Quran. Maybe it was the small D for Delta. Um, I think it was a bigger issue for my family. Uh, My parents are elderly. They're 82. So they had to do the full-on Regeneron. And, you know, to be honest with you, Guy, it it revealed a lot about what millions of people are facing. Um, It revealed to me, anyway, what millions of people are facing. Um, The lack of testing as a parent. Um, I was in, I tell you, Guy, I was in Idaho, and... We must have called every hospital and pharmacy within 125 miles. And if you if you waited four days for a test, you could do that at a hospital. But we had to go about 100 miles to find a pharmacy that had a testing kit. A hundred um, miles. That, that's it's ridiculous. It's unacceptable. And uh, a friend of mine cruised through there the next day, and um, we got a couple dozen kits to test. But that, that was one thing that strikes me. The other thing is there, there's a little pharmacy uh, out in Long Island where I was hanging out in quarantine, and they've been waiting to buy 2,000 test kits. They can't get them. And if, if, if a small little pharmacy in a small little town on Long Island, New York, can't find 2,000 test kits, how are we going to get 500 million? I, it, it just it boggles the mind why we're still dealing with this two years later. The other thing on the therapeutics is what I learned about my parents. Um, they got it. They're okay. Thank goodness they've got it. Um, but you really have to know someone who knows someone in order to get the good stuff. And if was that in Idaho? Was that in Idaho, Bill? No, that was in Ohio. Okay. Um, so I kind of scanned the country over the Christmas holiday, and I, you're able to get a pretty good uh, up-close-and-personal view about what, what's happening out there. Um, so, I, listen, I feel lucky, Guy, that I'm in a position um, where I have met people along the way who can offer help. And that's what I needed to help them. And thank goodness we were able to find it. Think about the people who don't get it. They're rationing care every day in these hospitals. There's doctors making decisions all the time about your age and your condition and whether or not you get the generic brand or whether you get the good stuff or whether you don't get either. And that's a damn shame. 
was the whatever therapeutic regimen that you're talking about, I think you mentioned Regeneron, was that clearly helpful in improving your parents' condition once they got it? It was unbelievable. I mean, I, at that point, I, was, I only had phone conversations with them. But I could tell between Monday night and Tuesday and Wednesday, by the time they got to Thursday, they were different people. They were different human beings. Wow. And then by that weekend, they were well on the backside of it and recovering and have since. So uh, this is, this is what... what then comes to mind, and you've already touched on it, and these are questions that I've asked sort of rhetorically a few different times on the air, TV, radio, anywhere that'll give me a platform to say it, but we are two years in, almost, two years in to this nightmare. And without getting, I'm not going to put this on you to get political because that's my job. You're a newsman, but you're also a citizen of the country. You're an informed observer. You're following this stuff very closely. You've just lived it. And I don't think it's political to say we have a president who won in large measure, not completely, but significantly because he said he would use science to shut down the virus, unlike the last guy. That was basically the crux of it. And it is now January, getting on mid-January 2022, and you can't find tests in much of the country. I got very lucky New Year's Eve, because my husband had it. My dad had it, then my brother had it, then my husband had it back to back to back over the holidays, all in this house. And we were out of tests, and you couldn't find them anywhere. You would call around, nothing. A lot of them wouldn't even answer their phone, because it was just ringing off the hook. I went to the local CVS, and I told this story earlier, and got totally lucky that they had just gotten a shipment in. They were like whispering, like it was a drug deal, like, we can only give you four. Don't talk too loudly about it. So I bought what I was able to buy and came home, and we used the test as we needed to. But that is our reality right now. In large swaths of the country, you can't get tested, certainly not in a timely manner. And the president says, oh, if only I had thought of getting more tests sooner. I wish I had done that. Well, we know by reporting that... This was very much on their radar. They were pitched a whole plan to do this, and they decided to go in another direction. There's that. Then you look at Operation Warp Speed from the Trump administration on vaccines. Huge success. People are asking questions. Why wasn't there an Operation Warp Speed to get treatments like Regeneron widely available to anyone who might need it, just like your parents? It just feels like we are flat-footed and still woefully behind where we should be given the amount of time that we've had to adjust to the so-called new normal. That, that's my frustration that continues to boil. Uh, what, what I would add to that is you're exactly right. He was the vaccine candidate, and I think he is governed as the president of the vaccine. And it seems that the tunnel vision that the administration has had is all about the vaccine. To the expense of things like therapeutics and not yes. pushing for um, uh, faster development of them. And I think if you go back to mid-December, I think when he was asked about it, he pretty much said that they didn't see Omicron coming. I'm paraphrasing there. Yep. Um, but it, had you had the therapeutics, a lot of people would have, they would have gotten relief from this. Um, I think, Guy, and I was I was watching Fauci today and Walensky from the CDC and others during that Senate hearing, and I I think they would be well advised, um, coming from a person who's never studied medicine short of a chemistry class in high school, um, to open every interview 
or every panel discussion or every hearing with the following sentence. We are still learning more about the virus. And if you did that, you would disarm a lot of people, and you'd also give yourself a little bit of wiggle room so that when the virus changes and adjusts, and you must change and adjust in your own personal and professional life, that you will understand that these changes are necessary. It's like calling options on the football field. You know, you want, you want to have a plan B. Omaha. And, and Omaha, let's r- run the damn play. <laughs> um, and I, I just think if that had been the approach from the beginning or even over the past year or so, I think we would have all been better armed with an understanding that this is going to change constantly. So get ready to call the audible and adjust. You know, Bill, and you mentioned this idea of the administration being too fixated on the vaccine, so the point of myopia. And I think that that's a really important point. And I say this, and it's sort of the caveat that I always have to give now, as someone who has been passionately advocating for people to get vaccinated on this show since they were first available, the vaccines. I got double vaxxed. I've encouraged everyone in my life to get vaccinated. I've been encouraging people who are eligible for it to get boosted and all of that. I am pro-vax. There's no part of me that is anti-vax. That being said, what we have seen, the attitude that's out there from the public health officials in many cases and the Biden administration is not pro or anti-vax. It's only vax. And that has been not sufficient, right? They reportedly rejected this big plan on a huge ramp up for testing because they were worried that it might complicate their vaccination push and might give people more of an excuse just to get tested in perpetuity versus getting vaccinated. So they said no, and we're paying a price for that now. On the therapeutics, we have heard allegations from, for example, Governor DeSantis down in Florida saying this type of thing, while endorsed technically as successful, was attacked and downplayed as being not good enough compared to the vaccines and therefore given short shrift or sort of poo-pooed. It seems like we have a growing toolbox to attack this pandemic and move on from it. But because a lot of the people making the decisions seem to only want to talk about one thing as a solution and they beat the point over and over again, they flog it to death, people tune it out, but they don't tune out some of these other failures that they're experiencing every day that it sounds like you and your family lived through over the holidays. Well, um, I think you said it very well. Um, I, I think they also have the media in their back pocket. I, listen, I mean, you're talking about it, right? And we talk about it on Fox. Um, a lot of the criticism, I think, us. is largely just sidestepped by many others. And it, it's not right. Um, if you're going to begin this pandemic and say that we're all in this together, it doesn't feel like that lately. Um, well, it hasn't for a while. I, 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 I think whoever's advising him, the White House, they thought, let's get everybody vaccinated, as many people as we can. That might have been a fair strategy three months ago. But again, the virus changes, and you have to change with it. Finally, Bill, the other thing that has totally gobsmacked me, and maybe it shouldn't, but it still does, that we are at this stage of the mess, and you still have schools closed ostensibly because of, in this case, Omicron, which we know is more mild. 
Looks like the Chicago schools might finally go back, but not before five additional days of learning loss for these kids. You've seen other school districts and individual schools dotted across the country with teachers saying it's not safe, it's too dangerous. It just kind of feels like we don't learn lessons sometimes in this country about what the data shows, what the science shows. They all say, follow the science. We love the science, except when there's an asterisk and they decide not to follow the science. And a lot of the arguments, Bill, that we've heard in favor of new school closures in the face of Omicron, which is not defensible from a scientific standpoint, these are arguments that may have held some water back in April or May of 2020. It's like, let's do the time warp again, back to a totally different era of this. Same arguments keep cropping up to justify things. If you can sense that I'm frustrated in my voice, you're right. It's very frustrating to watch. I just think the thing in Chicago, we really, uh, listen, maybe they're back in school on Wednesday, but I think the teachers still have to vote. Yep. I think the union heads have done that. Maybe that happens during the course of the day today or the evening tonight, but let's see what happens. I I thought what was so unfortunate about that this week is just how personal this is getting in Chicago. That head of the union basically said the mayor is relentlessly stupid and called her relentlessly stubborn. She turns around last night and says, quote, if I had a dollar for every time some privileged, clouted white guy called me stupid, I'd be a bazillionaire. So he goes low. She brings in race. What, what is this all about? Um, I think it's very unfortunate for the people of Chicago. And you think about these parents scrambling yet again Mm -hmm. to try and cover for their kids who aren't in school. And if they've got a job, they're paying a price. These are adults acting like kids, and they should should really rise above it. And I haven't seen that yet from the, the main characters in the Chicago story. No, and the kids are just sort of the pawns in this game. They're caught in the crossfire of all this rhetoric. The science is completely discarded, at least on the part of the teachers' union. You've got adults yelling at each other, selfish, selfish adults. When kids, I mean, you have multiple organizations, mental health organizations and pediatric organizations, declaring a crisis of mental health among children in this country, and it's treated almost like an afterthought because there are politics and self-interest at stake for adults, which to me is just totally shameful. But it's our reality right now. In January 2022, calendar year three of this pandemic from hell. Bill Hemmer, on that very happy note, we've got to let you go. We're up on a break. Co-host, America's Newsroom, every weekday, 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Bill, always appreciate it. Very glad you're feeling better. Particularly glad your parents are feeling better. Uh, absolutely. Me, I, th- th- for me, I was fine. Uh, but thank you so much for your good wishes. And again, a happy new year to you, Guy. Thanks for you having bet. me. You bet. Talk to you soon, Bill. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour, <laughs> despite the tenor of some of that segment. And it will continue after this break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Happy hour, Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. Unbelievable story. I saw this yesterday. Associated Press. In a medical first, doctors transplanted a pig heart into a human patient in a last-ditch effort to save his life. And a Maryland hospital said Monday that he's doing well three days after the highly experimental surgery. While it's too soon to know if the operation really will work, 
It marks a step in the decades-long quest to one day use animal organs for life-saving transplants. Doctors at the University of Maryland Medical Center say the transplant showed that a heart from a genetically modified animal can function in the human body without immediate rejection. The patient is a 57-year-old Maryland handyman. He knew there was no guarantee the experiment would work, but he was dying. He was not eligible for a human heart transplant. He had no other option. He decided to move forward. His quote was, it was either die or do this transplant. I want to live. I know it's a shot in the dark, but it's my last choice. And so far, this modified pig heart has not been rejected by his body, and he's surviving. Again, it's a little early for a victory dancer to say, you know, this has been a success, but I would say in the scheme of things, it's an early success and a dramatic development in the world of biomedical science and development. Christine, I know you're fascinated by this story. You drew it to my attention earlier. I had tweeted about it, but I guess you've been reading quite a lot about it. And the question that comes to mind for me, would you, producer Christine, one day when your inevitable liver transplant is necessary, would you take a pig's liver if that's what it took? Why do you think I'm fascinated by this? I mean, <laughs> it's actually scary how well you know me by now. Actually, that's very scary because that's exactly what I was thinking the whole time. I mean, forget the heart. I was thinking if we could do this with a heart, I for sure in the next 20 years probably am going to need a liver. And let's get this going. Let's work quicker here, boys. <laughs> well, this is a step in the right direction for Cookie and her potential needs down the road. So congratulations to everyone involved, and let's hope it sticks. But so far, so good. Happy Hour continues next on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Chugging right along. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. Earlier in the program, we welcomed Emily Campagno, Fox News contributor, co-host of Outnumbered, an attorney, also host of Fox Nation's Crimes That Changed America. She's got a lot on her plate. We had a fun time chatting about issues serious and less serious. Here's a taste of our conversation with our colleague, Emily Campagno. Based on your rooting interest and your loyalty to the Raiders, and again, you work for them, you're a cheerleader for them, what is the reaction of the fan base in general about the move to Vegas? Because sometimes when a franchise leaves your city, it feels like a betrayal. You can never really feel the same way about them again. People sometimes are like bitter. I'm going to be against them. I'm rooting against. Or is that the case with the fan base out there? Or are they just sort of embracing the Raiders, reconciling with the fact that they're now based in Vegas? They've been welcomed, of course, with open arms by Vegas, which is turning in to an awesome sports town at this point between them and the Golden Knights in hockey. What is your general sense of, like, not just the new fan base in Vegas, but the OG Oakland Raiders fan base and how they feel about the franchise? Right. We have a saying that what happens in Vegas started in Oakland. And I think, generally <laughs> speaking, it's only I like support. That. We are all ride or die the same people that supported them in Oakland, you know, are now driving down to Vegas and supporting them there. In that game guy that I was watching Saturday night, I literally recognized a ton of, we call them super fans in the audience. I recognize them from Oakland. So all of that, you know, 99.9%, 100% Raider Nation 
um, ride or die. But I will say, being being from that particular community, being from right there, being born in Oakland, raised in El Cerrito, right there in the Bay Area, we were devastated for that local community that because of local politics, the team and the city could not come to a consensus in that stadium, the Coliseum, and had to leave. I think for the health of the franchise, we saw that Raiders had to go. And But I, I think that the collateral damage is significant and it should never be overlooked and that the city of Oakland and that surrounding area, you know, we lost the Warriors, right? They went across the pond and they play in San Francisco yep. and the Oakland A's are even trying to move to Fremont. And so, you know, picture if all of you listening in your, in your beloved hometown, you went from having three sports teams in one, one complex area that you love and all of a sudden two out of three are gone and one is trying to leave and to see that sort of gaping hole and have such a loss in the affected area, which traditionally are black and brown communities there, um, for lack of a better term, it just sucks, right? But but like I said, uh, the, for the health of the franchise itself, I've seen a spark and a cohesiveness out of Vegas that's really exciting. And um, we've had a few setbacks this season, as you know, off the field with that mm-hmm. team. And the fact oh, yeah. that we're playing so well, yeah, notwithstanding them, like we're only excited for the future and what's to come. Yeah, the whole Gruden mess. I'll say this last thing. You and I were both speaking at an event. Gosh, when was it? Maybe six months ago. Time flies. But we were both at the same event speaking out in Colorado, Colorado Springs. And as a very funny troll, they welcomed you to Colorado with a custom Campagno Denver Broncos jersey. They knew that rivalry. They knew that you probably were going to burn that jersey, but they wanted to troll you anyway. I thought that was a pretty good move. Hysterical. And since then, <laughs> the Raiders-Broncos matchups, you know, I get teased with, hey, are you ready for that bet? You're going to have to put that jersey on. It's just so funny. But I, I, I loved that moment. And, you know, that's the thing about sports, and that's the thing about the, especially in these COVID times, um, the fact when sports could continue, that is our joy. That's our common language. It's so fun yep. to spar off of just teams and not have it be politics and things that people get so, um, you know, that the, the divisiveness just runs deep to the core. Like, sports reminds us that we can be on different teams, but ultimately we're on the same team. I love that. I think that's exactly right. I'm glad you said it. We talk some sports on this show for that reason, and I'm an unapologetic sports fan, and I feel even less apologetic about it now that you said what you just said. Well said, indeed. My full interview with Emily Campagno and the entire program today and every day, available free of charge, on demand, round the clock, on the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, what a night in Indianapolis for the Georgia Bulldogs. Joey Jones, hardcore dogs fan, joins us to revel and celebrate the national championship of his beloved team. That's straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Biggest third down in Bryce Young's career. You need 10, play clock at 4. From the pocket, launching downfield, underthrown and intercepted. Keely Ringo has an escort down the sidelines. All the way to the end zone, and Georgia is going to conquer the Crimson Tide. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday, and we talked just briefly yesterday about the national championship game. 
in college football. And it went down last night, and that was the game-sealing touchdown. A pick six, Chris Fowler on the call on the national telecast, ESPN. And that was the moment when it was quite clear that despite getting drubbed in the exact same matchup just a few weeks ago in the SEC championship game in Atlanta, the Georgia Bulldogs had pulled themselves off the mat, had come back, beaten Alabama, and claimed their first national championship in four decades. And on special report last night, I gave a shout-out before the game to a few of my friends who are big Bulldog fans. Mary Catherine Hamm, of course. Sanders and Karen Hickey, of course. Friends of mine. Our whole listening audience down in Atlanta at Extra, where, by the way, I'll be visiting in just a matter of weeks. Cannot wait for that. Congratulations to our great affiliate in Atlanta, Georgia. Is everyone okay today? Are there some hangovers, perhaps, throughout the state of Georgia today? Very much deserved, if that's the case. And someone else that I mentioned and name-checked, how could I not, is our final guest of the show, Joey Jones, retired Marine, Fox News contributor, Fox Nation host, and also host of the Fox podcast Proud American at foxnewspodcast.com, and a lifelong Bulldog fanatic. And we almost never have guests on the home stretch, our final segment of the show, but I could not resist because as a sports fan, I'm not a Georgia fan. I'm not an SEC fan. I'm a Big Ten guy. I'm a Northwestern fan. But I like to live vicariously through friends when they have an exciting moment. Most of the country, and I'm sorry if you're an Alabama fan, you guys will be back. You've got some amazing young players. Yes, some key weapons were injured. We get all of that. This might not be the segment for you, just to be clear. But just I'm just giving you that warning here. But, Joey, I know that there have been times in my life as a sports fan where I have been moved to tears of happiness when something has happened. And I could go through a few of the examples. I would say on the sports side, the college sports side of it, it pales in comparison to what you guys just experienced last night, not just winning the national championship game, but doing it by getting that monkey off of your back, beating the Crimson Tide, beating Nick Saban. It felt like it might not happen yet again. Brutal first half, slog, defensive play, that weird freak fumble recovery that Alabama converted into a touchdown. It's like, here we go again. And then I don't know what happened. In the fourth quarter, the afterburners came on for the Bulldogs. And it's like someone woke up and realized, oh, wait, we are the number one team in the country for a reason. We were for almost the entire season. Let's play that football. Let's stop doing this scared, can't-beat-Alabama thing. And it's got to be, I can only imagine, it's got to be so satisfying for you today you know satisfying is one way to put it i um actually i'm a little bit sick right now and i am on cloud nine i get to be home today i don't have to be anywhere i'm not doing a lot of work uh, i was supposed to travel today but i'm sick and uh and i tell you i don't know what else i don't know what else to do i, I was watching the game <laughs> right up until you gave me a call on its rerun and uh i tell you man it's, it's really amazing and my best friend is an Alabama fan. I just spent a week and a half with him traveling the country duck hunting. That's why I'm a little bit sick. And um, and so there's a group text of all Marines. There's a Florida fan, a couple Alabama fans, a Ohio State fan, and myself. And 
You know, it's been tough over the last five years because it's kind of like the Buffalo Bills of the past and the Miami Dolphins. You can always be the bridesmaid but never be the bride. Yep. And this idea that, uh, that you could have, you know, playing in the SEC, you could have everything you want except beating Alabama. And, you know, it's kind of tough. But, you know, I think I'd, I'd take a reflection and say, why does this stuff matter so much? Like, why, why is a football team I never played for or a university I didn't go to college at? Some of my family did, but I didn't. Why does that matter so much? I think it goes back to my time in the Marine Corps and being the guy from Georgia in the platoon also meant I was the fan from Georgia. And so whether I go to that school ever or not, or my kids do, or I'm obviously never going to play football for them, there's an identity that, that I get to share with the state of Georgia and therefore the University of Georgia. And so I think for everybody who's a fan, that's a part of it. it, it there's an identity um, connection there. And I tell you, you know, when you sit here and – you're taking a punch in life, and the Braves give up a what a ten to one lead in the first in the first um, inning of the last playoff game two years ago, or the Bulldogs come up short against Alabama in the national oh, championship. that, that again, second half was the 2018, yeah. and the Tua yeah Vailoa exactly. comes into the game out of nowhere and beats you guys. <laughs> I mean, it's just like here we go again. And then I was in Houston, and I got up. I was in Houston with a guy named Nate Boyer. If you don't know who he is, look him up. He's a great guy. I got up to go get merchandise at halftime because I was like, there's no way the Falcons are going to lose this lead. By the time I got back and handed Nate his giant Pepsi, we were tied up. And so then you start to kind of superimpose that on your own life. Like, man, everything I pull for always comes up short. Like, maybe, like, what's wrong with me? Or, or, you know, you really do if you're a real fan. You take that stuff personal. And in one year to have the Braves win the World Series when they weren't supposed to and have the Bulldogs win against Alabama after losing to them, with a quarterback that the narrative is always how, how he isn't that good, man, that really makes you feel like you can suffer the punches and, and work hard enough and come through it. So, Well, and I would also too, say, you know, just, personal, to, just but, to jump in, Joey, the, and not to belabor the point because it's now moot because of the game last night and the outcome, Georgia didn't just lose to Alabama in the SEC championship game. They got smoked by Alabama, and they were going to have to completely reboot if they were going to have a chance to – come back and win this one, and ultimately the score looked more like a blowout than it actually was. The pick six at the end sealed it, but Alabama had a chance to drive and tie it in the waning minutes of the game. And I think a lot of people were on the edge of their seat. I mean, if I were a Georgia fan, my fingernails would be gone. I just chewed them off. But there is that moment of catharsis. So one example I'll give you from my fandom, Northwestern had famously lost nine consecutive bowl games. Like, we were awful for decades, never made bowl games. We had won the Rose Bowl in the late 1940s and then went back to the Rose Bowl in 1996 and were competitive and were making bowl games and were competitive in most of these bowl games, losing in overtime, double overtime, but we lost nine consecutive bowl games from the mid-90s up until 2012. And I personally was at five of those losses and... It was so frustrating. And then finally, New Year's Day, it was the Gator Bowl 2012. We went and we beat Mississippi State. And, you know, we had a good turnout for a small school like us. And our fans were nervous. We're up by two touchdowns and it still feels like we're going to find a way to lose. And no one is willing to really celebrate yet because we're all too scared. And then there was a play that made it very clear at the very end of the game, like, wait, 
this is over. There's no way they can come back. We're actually going to do this. And our fans started celebrating like we'd won a world war. I mean, people were going absolutely crazy. People were in tears, hugging each other. I remember that feeling. And that is how it must have felt for so many Georgia fans. I got a call from Mary Catherine when the game was over. And she said she felt numb. She said she didn't even know what to do. She's like, we actually did the thing. I couldn't allow myself to believe it, and now it's happened. I don't know what to do. She said, I went to the back porch. I called the dogs as loudly as I could. Now I'm sitting here. Do I just cry for a few days? What do I do? And I think that's hilarious. It is this kind of surreal moment when your team finally does the thing that they're supposedly not able to ever do, right? No, you're absolutely right. And I'll tell you, you know, you bring up a good point. And that's how we measure success. And, like, for you, the idea that, you know, can Northwestern win a bowl game, especially an important bowl game, you know, the moment they do, that feeling is probably the exact same feeling as for a Georgia fan the moment they finally win the national championship. The reason why is we don't measure ourselves against, and we shouldn't, against everybody else's standard. We measure ourselves against what we know we can accomplish and what our standard is. And for Georgia, there were so many times, I mean, all the way back to 2012 with a different head coach, Mark Rick, you know, five yards and four seconds from winning the SEC championship, which would have put us against Notre Dame. And, and the idea being, and I think the lesson to take away, if not from Stetson Bennett, the quarterback, to the team of Georgia and all of its fans, that I think what we could all share with everybody else is we just got to get up one more time. You're going to get punched down, and sometimes it's by the exact same coach and the exact same team. Get up one more time. And that's how I live my life, and now I get to be a fan that gets to brag about that for my team, and I think that makes it even more special. I'm sure Mary Catherine can can exercise. We can all exercise that a little bit. <laughs> 100%. No matter what we're enjoying, something in our life makes us feel like we're getting punched down. And I'll tell you what, you talk about that game in Atlanta, it's 42-24, or 41-24, I don't remember. But I'll tell you, the, the, the biggest difference in that game was our DBs and our red zone offense. And what I mean by that is these are single elements of the game that make a huge difference. You lose by 20 points, but really it was, it was a couple of players and a couple of plays. And that shows you how good these teams are and how fine-tuned they are. That If you have one weakness, somebody's going to take advantage of it. And so I didn't worry about that game because I could see obviously why we lost and lost in the fashion we did. We were up by 10 in that game. Um, and we've been up by double digits in the three games before that. And, and so – you have the players and you have the skill set, but you got to believe it. And I think what we saw last night in the third quarter was Georgia starting to believe it, and uh, and that makes all the difference. And, and then they what, actually finished. We, that was the biggest difference. It, they finished it. in the fourth quarter. And, you know, to end on a political note, since it's mostly a political show, Georgia Bulldog legend Herschel Walker wants to be the next U.S. Senator from Georgia. He will be up against the incumbent Raphael Warnock. That could be a fascinating race. And I think he has a real chance to win. I wonder if Kirby Smart ran, would he win 90% of the vote in the state of Georgia today if the election were held today? I would say roughly around 90% would go for Kirby Smart. What do you think? You know, I, I think it's probably closer to 80 because we have an, 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 an imaginable <laughs> amount of Auburn fans that hunker down in that outer perimeter of Atlanta, and then you've got Tech there in the middle. So without the, without those you know implanted enemies, you know we Fair. talk about how people migrate here from California. It's really the Auburn and Georgia Tech folks that we have to keep our eye on. Okay. But outside of that, yeah, Kirby Smart's a pretty popular man in the state of Georgia. Probably the most popular next to maybe Herschel right now today. Well, congratulations to the whole state of Georgia, to Bulldog Nation, to our listeners in Atlanta at Extra. 
a very exciting night. And to personal friends who have been waiting for a very long time for this moment, Mary Catherine was nine months old when Georgia won their last national championship. And now she's seen another one. And the way that they're playing and they're recruiting, it may not be the last. Joey Jones, thanks for joining us. Congratulations. What an exciting, exciting night and run for your team. Absolutely, man. Thank you. And with that, we are out of time. Kennedy tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox Business Network. I'll be joining the panel this evening. Hope to see you there. Back here on the radio, same time, same place tomorrow. Have a great evening. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.